Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. All right, everyone, I am here with Jabron Zahid, Senior Researcher with Microsoft Research. Jabron, welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. Thank you very much, Sam. It's a pleasure to be here. Great to have you on the show. I am really looking forward to digging into our conversation. To get us started, I'd love to have you share a little bit about your background and how you came to work at the confluence of biology and artificial intelligence. Oh, thank you very much for this opportunity to share with you what we've been working on here at Microsoft. So by training, I'm an astrophysicist. And prior to coming to Microsoft a year and a half ago, I was working on understanding galaxy evolution and cosmology, largely trying to look at galaxies. The most recent stuff I was working on is look at galaxies and try to develop techniques to tie those galaxies to the dark matter distribution in the universe. And so yeah, I was interested in mapping the dark matter in the universe using the galaxies as little beacons of light in this sea of dark matter. And it was a real privilege to be able to study astrophysics. It's a beautiful subject. But as I've gotten older, one of the things that started to become a higher priority for me personally was to be able to have a greater impact with the work I was doing. And by impact, I meant that meant to me the ability to impact people's lives on the day to day. And while astronomy is a beautiful subject, it's not the most practical in terms of people's day-to-day lives. It has important cultural impact, doesn't have that impact on everyone's lives from the day-to-day. And so I started to look for opportunities, and one place that made perfect sense to look towards was industry, where not only is there interesting projects and interesting things being done, there's the opportunity and ability to have reach if you work at the right place that has the reach to individuals. And so when One of my former colleagues, who was also an astrophysicist himself, went to Microsoft Research. He told me about the position within the immunomics group and told me a little bit about the details. And it was just my bread and butter, right? It was a science project mixed with a very, very, if successful, could potentially have a huge impact, could even change the world if we succeed at what we're doing in this project. And so that just really got me excited. And then once I learned more about the project and brought my skills to the table. It made sense. I was a good fit for the role. And I ended up at Microsoft Research at the end of January last year, six weeks before the pandemic hit. Wow. Wow. And did you say immunomics? That's what we call it. So it's immunology mixed with genomics, basically. And so our project essentially is we're trying to map the immune system. And the way we do that is we genetically sequence the T cells of the human immune system, which will go into details of what that means but we're essentially trying to learn how to read the immune system from the genes themselves. And you mentioned that you started just before the pandemic. Did that influence the evolution of the project at all? Absolutely. Um, We have been engaged in helping adaptive biotechnologies. The project I work on, the Antigen Map Project, is a collaboration between Microsoft Research and Adaptive Biotechnologies. We've been helping them make diagnostics, and when COVID hit, it presented a very unique opportunity for us to turn all of our efforts, or a big fraction of our efforts, I should say, towards trying to diagnose COVID, which we did successfully. We have a, a Adaptive Biotechnologies has a uh, authorized FDA-authorized diagnostic on the market, which you could order today if you wanted to. And COVID not only provided a 
very strong impetus in regards to the fact that it was just one of the most pressing human problems that we were facing, but also it provided a unique opportunity to really bring together many, many aspects of our project. And so it really serves as a very, it's a great test case for understanding what we do at Immuno in our, our project, what the antigen map is. It really accelerated our research and has, I think it will turn, I, I anticipate that when we look back at this last year, it'll be seen as a watershed moment in our project simply because of the accelerant that COVID was for that pro- our project. Awesome. Awesome. Well, we'll dig into the machine learning aspect of the project and how you apply ML, but I think I'd like to hear a bit more about the biology and understand the problem that you're trying to solve at a more fundamental level. Immunomics, how does it work? What specifically are you trying to do with the antigen map project? Yeah, well, thank you for asking about that, Sam. I'm really happy to share this. And I should first of all say that what I'm discussing now is a representation of 50 or so people's work. So it's not just me who's carrying this out. This is a large collaboration. And so it really is an effort that spans multiple companies and really builds on decades of research in immunology. So The human immune system is an amazing system. The adaptive immune system specifically is something that started evolving about 300 million years ago. And what the adaptive immune system is, is the part of the human immune system that has a memory. So when you're a kid, you get sick with, let's say, measles or something, your immune system will eventually respond, will respond to that. And the adaptive immune system will retain a memory of having seen the measles. And you will not get sick with the measles again if you've had it in the past because the second your body gets exposed to the measles, your adaptive immune system is ready to go into it remembers what it looks like, what the pathogens from measles looks like, and it springs into action. And so a big part of that immune system is the T cells. And the T cells essentially are floating around in your blood and in some of your organs. And when they recognize they have a little receptor on their surface. And that's actually what we sequence is the T-cell receptor. So we get a genetic sequence of the T-cell receptor, and that genetic sequence encodes more or less the shape of that receptor. And like a lock, a key fitting into a lock, if that T-cell finds its lock that, that it fits into, if it finds the pathogen that it binds, it'll basically trigger an immune response. And after that immune res- that virus or bacteria is cleared from the body, it will remember. And those T cells, that special T cell will stick around in your body for much longer than the rest of the T cells. These T cells, the adaptive immune system itself is produced by a stochastic quasi random process in which different combinations of amino acids are put together, producing a huge number of possible shapes for the T cell receptor. And so that's where the complexity of the problem comes in. And that's where machine learning is required. The space of possible T cells is something like 10 to the 15. And you yourself have hundreds of billions of these things in your body. And so trying to use sequencing, which is what adaptive biotechnology's real uh, secret sauce is, their ability to genetically sequence a large number of T cells. So for an individual, I can tell you from a drop of blood, or not a drop of blood, a vial of blood, You can sequence something like 500,000 to a million T cells, and then we can read those in our computer, and we have that for tens of thousands of individuals now. You can imagine, now you have all these strings of letters floating around that represent T cells. You want to read what do those letters mean, because those T cells encode the memory of all the things you've been exposed to in your past. So 
if we can successfully read that book of your immune system, we will be able to tell you all the things you've been exposed to in the past and things you may be actively fighting, which is the area we've been mostly focused on, which is building diagnostics of active things you're actively fighting now. So a couple of questions based on your explanation. The first is you mentioned that T-cell production is in many ways random, the result of some stochastic process. So the 500,000 T-cells that you mentioned you might pull from a vial of my blood isn't some historical DNA record of 500,000 diseases. There's some number of diseases that have created T-cells, but then there's a lot of randomness built in. Is that, am I getting that right? That's a wonderful question. And so what it really is, is yeah, the process by which these T-cells are produced is called VDJ recombination. And essentially in your thymus, different groupings of amino acids are inserted to create the T-cell receptor. Now, those are naive T-cells. They don't know what their cognate pathogen is. You just have a huge number of them. This is the beauty of the adaptive immune system. It just creates a huge number of them. It's only when those random ones, the naive ones, encounter a pathogen to which they latch, that so, so that key fitting into the lock, that's when they proliferate. They clonally expand. They start reproducing themselves, and they retain a memory and they become what are called memory cells. This is a very simplified version of it, but essentially what happens. And at that stage, those will stick around in your blood far longer than the ones that are naive. And to your question specifically, when we draw the vial of blood, we have a huge number of these naive cells. The vast majority are naive cells, actually, but not all of them. One to some fives of percent, let's say, are these memory cells. And discriminating between the memory and naive is one of the major challenges of our project. And that's something we're very actively engaged in. Mm. So we'll come back to that in a second. I want to ask another question I had about this. When you're doing the the sequencing, and maybe it is the same question, when you're doing the sequencing, is the sequence of proteins directly telling you the receptor or something about the receptor? Or is there something more fundamental about a T-cell that is coming out of the sequencing? Yeah, that's a great question. And so the sequencing is of the, what's known as the CDR3 region, which encodes the receptor itself. Okay. And the sequence is just A's, you know, just amino acids. So like 20 different possibilities of A's, C's, T's, G's, whatever, right? Mm -hmm. But amino acids are encoding for proteins, which then make up the structure of the receptor. And in your mind, the picture you should have is literally the lock and key picture, right? That there is a structure to this receptor. It has to physically fit the pathogen that it's trying to bind in a way that it binds through a physical chemical bond, essentially. And if the shape is right, then those two things will come together and it'll be a good fit. And that's when the immune response starts. Otherwise, nothing happens. Those cells just float around. Mm -hmm. And when you're using machine learning to distinguish between the random T cells and the ones that are activated and have identified their pathogen, it's not within that protein sequence because the receptors are the same. Is there some other flag or characteristic that distinguishes the two? Yeah. So generally, if one really wanted to get the ground truth, right? you would go and you would look at surface markers on this T-cell. So not the receptor itself, but the T-cell that would help you distinguish between whether it's a memory or naive cell. 
So the way we go about understanding that issue is by looking at other characteristics. One of the primary characteristics is what's known as the publicity of the T-cell. So these T-cells have a range of generation uh, probabilities of occurring in any individual, which is referred to as the generation probability. So the probability is generated by this random process of VDJ. And for ones that have reasonably high generation probabilities, there's a good chance you'll see them in a number of individuals. And so one of the standard ways that we set up our experiments or our, the methods by which we get at and arrive at finding the collection of T-cells that are both memory and specific to a disease is, COVID's a great example. You have 1,000 individuals that have COVID. We've drawn their blood. We've sampled their T-cells. And we compare that against 1,000 people, a control sample that don't have COVID. And we simply ask the question, which T-cells appear in a statistically significantly higher frequency mm -hmm. amongst the individuals that have COVID as compared to the individuals that don't? And then, you know, that gives you your set of T-cells that may potentially be T-cells that are actively fighting COVID. And then, you know, you do all your machine learning and things like that from there. So that's sort of the starting point of our diagnostic uh, procedure. Got it. Got it. It sounds like a, a great application for some pattern matching. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, you can, you can really imagine some of the tools of natural language processing coming into here because these are literally just strings. But you got to make throw in a little bit of physics, too, because, you know, they're encoding for physical properties of a thing. And so it's, it's a complicated problem, which we're just scratching the surface of right now, but really have made enough progress that it's clear to us this is going to be something that's going to yield very important techniques for us understanding human health. So before we dig into the technology aspect, I, I just want to maybe hit pause briefly and, and ask you. You talked about your background as a astrophysicist and cosmologist. I did not hear doctor, biologists, any of that, but yet you're speaking very fluently about the biology. I'm just curious about that process for you coming up to speed in this domain and how you approached it. And if there's anything interesting from your background that you brought to, to this problem area. So, uh, yeah, I... Starting out on this project, I had no very, I mean, I had high school biology <laughs> understanding of the immune system and then whatever Wikipedia told me. So it really was not, there wasn't, you know, I didn't have any sophisticated knowledge. And so that was the primary challenge. The tools that I had learned along the way for studying galaxies and cosmology were very applicable and translated very straightforwardly to the problem. And the techniques and the training and the craft of doing research was something I had been doing research for 20 years. I understood and had great mentorship that really gave me those skills. But the domain-specific knowledge was the greatest challenge and remains my greatest challenge to this day. Now, I mean, you may say I speak of it fluently, but, you know, in my mind, I feel that ignorance is outweighing the knowledge that I have on this <laughs> subject. So, you know, I appreciate you uh, uh, saying that. But the reality is that that's been the challenge. And there are, you know, basically the way you approach a science problem is you, you got to start playing with the data, but at the same time, you got to contextualize that exploration of the data in what is known in the field. And the way I've gone about doing that is, of course, reading a huge amount of the papers that have the 30 years of immunological, 40 years of immunological research on the subject. 
going to conferences when possible. That's been a little bit more difficult these days, of course, but it's still, you know, people have made huge, scientists have made huge strides in you know, virtual conferences. And probably one of the most important things is talking to my colleagues that are immunologists and just asking what, you know, sometimes it may seem like a stupid question uh, or a dumb question, but it's really just a reflection of my own ignorance and trying to fill that in. And that's what's gotten me this far. And I feel that filling in those gaps combined with the techniques and that we're developing as a team surround using the tools of machine learning are really the things that are going to be required to take this project to the next level. Mm. So let's talk about some of those techniques. You described the setup, at least high level, of this pattern matching problem. You've got your folks with an identified disease. You've got your control group. You take a bunch of T-cells from all of them and you're trying to figure out which T-cells are more significantly evidenced in your exposed group. What machine learning approaches do you apply to a problem like that? Or, and even maybe the, the step before that, what is the data collection and you know, assuming these are supervised techniques, labeling process look like for this kind of problem? Yeah, so... We could take COVID as an example. It varies from disease to disease, uh, but COVID is, it, I think, encapsulates much of the process, which is, I think, in some sense, a process that's ubiquitous in any machine learning process, right? Which is, you collect your data, which is drawing vials of blood. And for COVID, the way we did that was Adaptive has partners throughout uh, both industry and uh, academia. So the ground truth oftentimes, not always, but most of the times was taken as a PCR test, right? So if someone had a PCR positive test, we know, okay, this person has the virus in their body, right? And therefore, they're not only exposed, they're infected. So let's draw their blood. So that's sort of where the labels are typically coming from. There are other subtleties involved, uh, which we don't need to go into. So then you get your label data. Now we have a huge number of... If I can, uh, if I can jump in quickly there... These PCR tests are, are, aren't perfect. They have, you know, whatever the false positive rate is for the PCR test, false negative rate. Do you try to ad adjust for that in the process or do you, you know, either by, you know, some kind of quorum technique, multiple tests or mathematically somewhere? Yeah, there are different ways depending on the circumstances in which we address that issue. Oftentimes what we see is that the, these false negatives, we, and which are you know somewhere at the level of, let's say, 5% or so, I think that's typically the number. You just see them as outliers, right? You see them as things that, I mean, our COVID diagnostic is quite robust in that it is pretty obvious when someone has COVID. This, I mean, we have something like 90% sensitivity at 99.8% specificity, which is a pretty robust test. Uh, it's competitive with any of the antibodies tests and, in fact, probably is better than many of them. We've examined that, the serology test. So you see them as outliers. But, you know, we have large enough samples and, you know, it's just that's part of the game, right? There's going to always it's be another source of noise. Yeah, there's always noise and you just yep. deal with it. And it depends on the circumstances and how it's affecting your system. So it's certainly an issue, but we are well equipped to handle that. Okay. Yeah. So then we have our label data. And so... Like in any machine learning project, one of the things you really want to do next is once you've collected the data is determine your features. And so at the highest level, our features are these public sequences, these sequences of these T cells that appear in multiple individuals in a statistically higher frequency in the individuals who have whatever endpoint we care about. In the case of COVID, people who have COVID, 
versus individuals in our control sample. And then we just count those sequences, right? How many of those are occurring in an individual? And then do a simple logistic regression model. And that gets you pretty far. It's impressive how far <laughs> that can get you. And just like any machine learning application, usually the simplest models get you 90% of the way there. It's And you have to start with the simplest models because you have to have a baseline, I think, and you can interpret them much more easily. So that's where we're at in terms of our diagnostic. We have the simple model that we can submit to the FDA and it has been authorized by the FDA. But of course, you want to extend on that, right? I mean, there is, we have this enormous data set and how do you push that further, right? We, we don't care about just whether you have COVID or not. We want to know other things that we can learn from this data. And so one an interesting application is in addition to these tests where we just sequence the repertoire, what we call the repertoire, so the T cells, we, there's laboratory experiments in which we take the actual pieces of the virus of COVID and put them in test tubes and throw a bunch of T cells at them and see what sticks to what. And by doing this, not only do we get, so, you know, one of the issues with the diagnostic approach I described is you see that these T cells are statistically occurring in a higher statistical frequency in the cases versus the controls, but you don't really know for sure whether they're actually specific, like specifically attacking COVID. So these laboratory experiments allow us to make that test, which is take those pieces of the virus. When the virus enters your body, the way your immune system responds is it chops up the virus and then presents it essentially on a surface of a cell to the T cell to come along and grasp onto it, right? So there's a presentation step and that presentation is usually about 10 or so amino acids of the virus. So it gets chopped up. So we chop up the virus, throw it in a test tube, throw a bunch of T cells at it, figure out which ones stick, and then ask the question, of the ones that are sticking, how many of these do we see in our diagnostic, right? In the public cells that we comprise our diagnostic. And the upshot of all of this is now we have the ability to both know that the T cells that we have in our diagnostic are attacking COVID, but not only that, but what they are attacking in COVID. What part of the virus are they attacking? Meaning which 10, 10 protein sequence is the receptor latching onto in particular? Exactly. 10-ish, right? So that's just a rough number, yeah. yeah. And that one upshot of this is we can distinguish now between whether your T, you know, you, this T cell is hitting the spike protein, which is the, the protein that encodes the, the spikes on the surface of coronavirus, or the, the envelope protein, which creates like the envelope or something, something else. and If you follow what the vaccine development, one thing you note is that almost all the vaccines, certainly all the ones that have been approved in the United States, all target the spike protein. So they don't Mm -hmm. give you the, they don't introduce the whole coronavirus. They just cut out the spike protein Mm -hmm. and the, you know, whether it's mRNA virus where they just indirectly introduce that RNA into your body or whether it's something like the Johnson and Johnson, which they attach it to a vector, like a, 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 like a common cold virus, and they attach it. In any case, that's what your body is building an immune response up to. And the fact that we can discriminate between what the T cells are responding to means that our diagnostic has the power, and we've, we're, we're working on this very uh, diligently, to discriminate whether you have had a vaccine or a natural infection. And that has important implications for tr- things like trying to understand People who get reinfected after a vaccine, for example. And, you know, of course, vaccine manufacturers must will really care about that. And 
COVID, whether we like it or not, it's going to be here for a while. So this is really providing an ability for us to begin to understand and dissect the disease in a way that with at a level of resolution that hasn't been previously possible. Mm. Uh, so I'm not sure I'm following that. How does this technique allow you to differentiate between folks that have T-cells because they were vaccinated versus the naturally occurring virus? Okay, yeah, let me, let me elaborate. Before you do that, one thing I've got to say, I love that you refer to the set of T-cells that a person has as a repertoire, like it's a set of skills. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's what the field refers to them. That's a bit of jargon, but I, I love that too. I'm glad you picked up on that. That's kind of cool, right? That's just the technical term for it. Mm-hmm. So again, the diagnostic that we build works by counting up the T-cell response, right? So you count up the yep. different T-cells. And now that we think are specific to COVID, but now what we can say is these T cells are specific to this subset of all of our T cells that we think are in our diagnostic. Let's say we have 10,000 T cells in our diagnostic. Some fraction of those are attacking the spike protein. Ah. And some fraction of those are not attacking spike, they're attacking the envelope. And the spike protein is a small fraction of the genome of COVID, uh, coronavirus. There's, a lot, you know, there's something like 10,000 amino acids, and the spike is only a few hundred to a few thousand. I don't remember the exact number. But if we know which T cell is attacking what, people who have a vaccination, we only observe those T cells that are targeting spike in those individuals. It's actually Got it. quite... It's, it's amazing how robustly we can do that. Whereas someone who has a natural infection will light up, you know, will have a response that covers a much broader range of the T cells. Mm-hmm. So it's really speaking to both the granularity of the problem, and I'll elaborate on this in a second, but also the diversity of T cells that you are speaking to. It's not the case that there is a coronavirus T-cell and there's one and only one. It's that there's a family of T-cells that attack different aspects of the coronavirus and maybe even multiple that attack the spike. And the population that someone has of each of the possibly many in this family can tell you a lot about how they acquired the virus. Absolutely. And, you know, that's partly where the machine well, learning comes in. The T cells, maybe. You didn't necessarily. Yeah, yeah that's right. Virus. That's right. How, how the immune response was triggered is one way to yeah. think about it, right? Yeah. And, and that really opens up. I mean, and the way you phrased it is exactly right. And that it, it automatically lends itself to, well, what's similar about these T cells, right? What are so, And that's really where that machine learning comes in, right? Like finding those deep, deep patterns encoded in those receptors. That, you know, what makes these T cells specific to Corona, uh, COVID, right? And what's similar about these two that we know are hitting the spike protein and things like that, right? So that's really where the next step of the project really requires this very sophisticated modeling, a a problem we haven't cracked, by the way, despite many, many, many different attempts. So it's a very difficult problem and can only be addressed with the tools and uh, sophistication of machine learning algorithms. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we started out talking about logistic regression and the supervised problem where you've got the test results as labels. And now you're starting to talk about things that sound like clustering and unsupervised types of problems. Is that the general direction that you're you're heading with this kind of analysis? Absolutely. So the unsupervised techniques provide a means of, oh yeah, you know, for clustering, for example, dimensionality reduction. The standard approach is that one would throw at any problem of very, very high dimensionality and a large parameter space. 
But that's only the first step, right? The, the, the real question, the heart of it all, is we want to read the immune system. What we call the antigen map is I give you a T cell and, and its receptor, and you tell me what antigen that T cell will bind to. Mm. Because it's only then that we can read off your immune history, right? Because when we draw your blood, we may know, okay, this T cell is a memory cell, but we won't know if it's a memory cell to CM, you know, uh, the common cold or to coronavirus or to some bacteria. We won't know that just from looking at it. We'll have to use the sequence and understand how that sequence encodes the information about what it's meant to and what it has attached to in the past, what it's bound to, I guess, in the past. And so that's where this, the machine learning really comes in. And you can imagine the complexity of the problem, right? I mean, we're literally trying to read the immune system in a way that allows us to read your immune history. And it's just a bunch of strings when you look at it on this computer screen. And so mm -hmm. the, the challenge is going from that bunch of strings on your computer screen to a physical mechanism and physical system and the physical properties of that T-cell that really give us the information about what it's binding. Mm -hmm. So you've mentioned you've tried a lot of things and have a, a, a list of things that haven't worked. What are some of those things? Yeah, that's a great question. I think uh, like it's, it's pretty interesting because uh, uh, you know, a few researchers have come onto this problem since I have. And everyone treads the same path, I think, in some sense, which is you come in and you say logistic regression. How are you still using logistic regression to do this, right? And, and that's that naivete that's kind of required to really try some interesting, crazy things in uh, science. And so one of the obvious things, I think, is, well, how far could we carry this analogy of we're trying to read the immune system, right? So, you know, I, what I, one of the things I tried was to take BERT which is a you know, well-known natural language processing model, which is it's, it's called a transformer. It's a model that's meant to essentially, it's used in natural language processing tasks for uh, questions and answers on a, a bot or you know, translation, multiple. I mean, it's a very multifaceted tool. And I asked the question, could I just take, and, you know, they, and so one of the common, natural language processing is a field in which machine learning has really matured and they have techniques and approaches in by which what they call transfer learning, where you can take a model trained in one domain. This happens in image analysis as well. But you take a model trained in one domain, let's say all of the uh, web pages of Wikipedia, and then apply it in another domain, right? So you do this training in this huge data set, and then you fine tune it to your specific problem. It works to varying degrees depending on the nature of the problem, but that's besides the point. But you know, the question I ask is, can we just use this model, this transformer type natural language processing model? to read the, <laughs> the, the sequences, right? And see if we can get somewhere. And it turns out it just doesn't work. You know, it doesn't work at least in the way that we set it up. Uh, and it's not surprising. I mean, these sequences, uh, the, the analogy breaks down between natural you know, language and biophysics, biochemistry. And understanding where that breakdown happens is one of the most critical questions, I think, to really figuring out what the right set of algorithms and the right set of constraints and the right data. And I mean, I think in some ways, the right setup of the problem, right? That's one of the most difficult tasks in machine learning is setting up the problem appropriately. Hopefully these failures will help guide us to the path uh, that's going to lead us to success. Mm -hmm. So are, are there specific things that you can share that you learned in attempting to apply BERT to this problem or specific places that it broke down? 
so I didn't push it too far. I would say that the one thing that immediately stood out to me was it, there is it worked to a degree. Mm-hmm. So at first I was very excited. I was like, wow, this is this has predictive power on specific tasks. And so, hey, let's, you know, let's let's publish this or whatever. Let's use it. But it turned out, I mean, these BERT is like something like a hundred million parameter model, right? Uh, it's a really, really huge model, which, you know, unless you have a lot of data, it's not really justified. And the reason it was working is basically the way BERT is designed, as I understand it, is, you know, typically you have like an embedding, like a, a layer that does all the embedding. And then you have just a layer that uh, that you attach to it on the end that then does like essentially the decoding slash like whatever task you care about. and. Mm-hmm. More or less, like most of the interesting stuff was happening in those just surface layers. I mean, you could really reduce the model down, take away the 700-odd hidden layers, and still get the same level of accuracy. And then, in fact, what that led me to realize was there's actually even simpler models, like Random Forest, (laughs) embarrassingly, that will get you that same level of accuracy that was I seen in BERT. And so one of the lessons I honestly took away from that was... uh, don't rush to the most complicated models. Start with simple models and build up from there. And that's what we've been doing, one of the, the ways we've been approaching this problem. And one of the things we've learned by going this approach is that, you know, you have these strings of amino acids. You cannot just substitute in random positions new amino acids and think that it'll bind to the same thing. The places where substitutions can happen in this, the amino acid string is very specific places and only changes from very specific amino acids to different amino acids. And this, of course, begs the question, why is that the case? And we suspect this has to do with the physical properties of the amino acids themselves. Uh, some are interchangeable. This is known through in, because the chemical, physical chemical properties of these amino acids have been measured in the laboratory. And so really now putting that physical picture together which came into sharp relief when we started by using complex models, but understood that actually simpler models can get us there, is really guided us on the path of understanding the problem. So, you know, it's not just enough. What we're, we're, we're dealing with human health. It's not just enough to predict things. We need to understand why those predictions are happening the way they are. Otherwise, we run a serious risk of producing essentially a black box. And, you know, we found, you know, in human health, often you have confounding signals. So you think you're seeing one thing, but it's actually being caused by something completely unrelated. And when you don't fully understand what your model is doing, you can fall into those types of traps. So with regard to BERT, it sounds like you were using, you mentioned uh, transfer learning, sounds like you were using a pre-trained BERT model and trying to fine tune. Did you also try to to train from ground up, Bert? Yeah, we did. I think the main, the thing that we took from Bert was the unsupervised training step, which was what, you know, Bert does is it would take a sentence and it would mask out random words in that sentence and then try to reproduce what was masked out. And that's unsupervised because you don't... Would seem to preserve some of the positionality uh, that you require for proteins. Exactly. So we would mask out random amino acids and then try to reproduce the the sequence on the other side. You start with that unsupervised task. Yeah. So that's sort of how you do the pre-training, so to speak. And then you slap on like a layer for a classifier or whatever your specific task is, right? And so... We definitely tried that, and it was successful, as I said, but what we came to learn was something like a random forest is a lot easier to interpret what is it that's what we're learning, and 
through that like mm. procedure, we learned that, oh, it's actually positional information and very specific types of substitutions that are allowed. And so it was a lesson that I've learned many times you doing machine learning, which is don't go to the complex models, don't go to what's like sexy necessarily right away unless it's warranted. But we also follow our passions. And sometimes you get, you know, you see the new shiny new model and you want to try it, right? And so BERT, they make it easy. A natural language processing community in general makes it very easy to take models out of the box and use them. Something I think that the rest of the sciences and certainly, you know, immunology would benefit greatly from is making progress in that way as well. Awesome. Awesome. So tell us about where you are with this project relative to where you want to be and what the future path is. Yeah, we have made significant progress in the last year, driven by COVID, not only the fact that it's one of was and remains one of the greatest challenges, immediate challenges facing humanity, but also it provided an accelerant for us to bring together all our techniques that we've been working on. So I described, you know, for example, these laboratory techniques where we throw a bunch of T cells at the pieces of the virus, bringing that together with our diagnostic approaches has demonstrated like this application I was describing for discriminating between vaccine versus natural infection, et cetera. So We really brought together a lot of the different techniques and demonstrated the power of these techniques, not only to ourselves, which is one of the most important things, but to the world by having these diagnostics that are authorized by the FDA. And I may be wrong about this, but I'm pretty confident that these are some of the very first, if not the first, the, the COVID diagnostic machine learning diagnostic approved by the, the FDA. So that in and of itself is an amazing accomplishment. And, and there's a lot of back and forth on how do you do that, you know, and things like that, validate, et cetera. So that's an interesting side note. So we made an enormous progress. But the ultimate goal is the antigen map, as I've described the beginning, which is this ability to take any T cell and understand what it's meant to target. And my hope is that, you know, five years from now, when we look back at this moment, we'll see it as a watershed moment, and we will have arrived at a firm understanding of whether that is even possible, whether the antigen map is possible. Because the reality is this is a, we often refer to it internally as a moonshot. I mean, it's a high-risk, high-reward venture. But if we are able to succeed in this, we will change the world. We will have the ability to understand immune, the human health in a way that humans have never had before. It will impact therapeutics, diagnostics, every aspect of how we treat human health. It will benefit humanity in a way that's kind of scary to think about in some ways. Uh, But, you know, I'm excited to be a part of this. I, I hope we succeed. I hope we are able to provide this great benefit to the world. And We'll see if we can succeed or not. That's the question that we've set out to answer. And hopefully in five years, we'll have an answer to that question. Awesome. Well, Gibran, thanks so much for doing the work, but also coming on the show to share uh, a bit of it with us. Sam, thank you so much for this opportunity to share the amazing work we're doing on our team. Thank you. Thank you. All right, everyone. That's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit TwimmelAI.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.
All right, everyone, that's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.